Hey, it's David Weiner, director of In Search of Darkness Part 2, and you are listening to The Graveyard Show. Welcome to another edition of the Graveyard Show podcast. I am your caretaker, and the graveyard is open for 2021. Hello, everybody. Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, I'm glad to be opening the gates to the graveyard for the first time this year. It's great having you back inside the graveyard. Um, I hope all of you had a great holiday. Uh, Christmas, Hanukkah, uh, whatever uh, holiday you might have been uh, celebrating in the month of December. Uh, Of course, New Year's. I hope all of you had a really uh, fun time. Well, as fun as as fun as it could have been in 2020, which um, really meant, well, not very fun at all. But I hope you were able to enjoy it to some degree. Um, we, uh, we certainly got through a whole lot last year, and uh, it's going to be nice to finally put 2020 in the rearview mirror and watch it get smaller and smaller in the background as we uh, start getting into uh, 2021. If you'd like to get in touch with the program, the email address is gyspodcast at gmail.com. gyspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, G is in grave, Y is in yard, S is in show. You can send me your thoughts, comments, uh, and if you're part of the horror community and you have something to promote, please do not hesitate to reach out as well. Now, as you heard at the top of the show, David Weiner is back on the program. Now, he joined me last year in October to talk about his film at the time, In Search of Darkness Part 1, but he is here to talk about In Search of Darkness Part 2, which I will get into how you can find that in just a moment. Now, if you missed um, In Search of Darkness Part 1, it is still available and streaming on the uh, Shutter app. So you can go to Shutter and In Search of Darkness will be there. Now, as far as In Search of Darkness Part 2 goes, after fulfilling product to their buyers, um, In Search of Darkness Part 2 is currently not available to the public. However, however, you can still get information about the film as it comes out. And you do that by going to 80shorrordoc.com. That is 80s. H-O-R-R-O-R-D-O-C.com. Go there, sign up for their newsletter, and as soon as information comes out regarding the film, you will get it in your inbox. So if the film becomes available for purchase or for rent or if it ends up on a streamer somewhere, you will get that information in your inbox as soon as it's available. So that's 80shorrordoc.com. Now, if you missed my interview with David for part one, you can go back to Tombstones uh, number 21 and 22. Uh, It was a two-part interview. Uh, My interview with David is just uh, going to be for this podcast regarding part two of In Search of Darkness. But um, I'll get into on the other side of this interview something else that David and I did uh, for a future project coming up. All right. There's so much to talk about with David that I don't want to waste any more time. And as you can hear in the background, my grave diggers, uh, they're ready to go as well. They've had quite a few uh, months off. They're well rested. They are ready to go. And when they start digging a new grave here, that means only one thing. My guest has arrived and it's time for me to go back to the 80s and get to work. Yes. 
David Weiner is the director of In Search of Darkness Part 2, The Journey into 80s Horror Continues. And as I mentioned earlier, although the film is not currently available, you can go to 80shorrordoc.com. That's 80s-h-o-r-r-o-r-d-o-c.com. Sign up for the newsletter so you can get all the updated information on when the film will become available, and you'll be the first to find out about it. In the meantime, David's uh, documentary, In Search of Darkness Part 1, is still streaming on Shudder. It's still getting its solid five skull rating, and of course it should because it's awesome. And it is my pleasure to welcome back David Weiner to Inside the Graveyard. David, thanks for joining me, and Happy New Year to you. Happy to be here in 2021 talking about anything. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> well, listen, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to join me here on the program again. Uh, I've really been looking forward to this interview since we last spoke in October of 2020. Uh, I told you how much of a fan I was of part one. And I have to say, having seen part two, it certainly did not disappoint. You did a heck of a job. You and your team did a great job again uh, with this film. Uh, so I wanted to begin uh, by asking you about um, something that I didn't get a chance to talk to you about uh, during our first interview. Uh, there's a ton of 80s nostalgia that just keeps coming back, whether it's um, uh, looking back at uh, pop culture, uh, video games, uh, even in uh, recent films. Uh, we have the new Wonder Woman movie, 1984. Uh, we have Scare Package, which is an homage to 80s horror. We have TV shows like Stranger Things and uh, American Horror Stories last season took place in the 80s. So what is it about this decade that has us constantly coming back to it? I think it's, it's sort of a twofold approach about why people are talking about the 80s and and wanting to relive in the 80s, you know, from from my perspective, I was there. Uh, I, I, I grew up, my adolescence was in the 80s. I was born in 68, so I had a 70s childhood and an 80s adolescence. And so those are hardcore formative years of happiness. And uh, usually it, it has to do with, with the products and the merchandising and, and, and the life that we lived that sort of uh, was surrounded by what a lot of people think the 80s represent which is all sorts of things to all different people but they're the people who are making movies now the people who are making tv shows now a lot of them are my age maybe a little younger maybe a little older but they were there and they're 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 sort of trying to relive this and and capture this to a certain degree but i think as more of us who are consumers and are getting nostalgic uh, and are also living probably the you know the worst time in our lives right now collectively uh, with what's going on in the world right now. Um, it's the comfort blanket of going back to that decade that I think we all sort of gravitate to. But there's there's one other element to it, and that's I think any decade, uh, whether you're 20 or 30 years out, a lot of people sort of go back to these these times, and it's cyclical. So. You know, the 70s was really sort of cool, and, and again, prior to the 80s being cool, again. The 60s were cool before that. The 50s, I mean, when I grew up in the 70s, a lot of the shows were, you know, happy days, sha-na-na. You know, uh, uh, George, George uh, Lucas was doing American Graffiti. You know, they were reliving their youths, and they were putting it on the TV and the big screen. And I was a little kid just lapping it up because that was the entertainment. But um, as you progressively go, you know, you've got that that 70s show. They did try and do that 80s show, but I think it was a little too early and it didn't last very long. But uh, the, the tastemakers are creating 
sort of a little happy bubble of nostalgia. And we're either eating it or avoiding it. Yeah, it's funny because you and I are not too far off age-wise. Um, and I always tell people that uh, I'm a child of the 70s, but I'm a product of the 80s. And yeah. it, it really is so true because, I mean, you think about those um, uh Days like you mentioned, happy days, and like the, seeing the sitcoms from the '70s, and then all of a sudden you progress in the '80s, and how everything kind of just went to overdrive all of a sudden with the uh, opening up of cable now into more homes, and you started just seeing all the stuff happening, home video and everything else. It, it was pre- it's pretty incredible. Yeah, so it's one of those things where you know, as a kid, I, I I was ready to watch the Muppet Show, but I had to sit through the last couple minutes of Sha Na Na waiting for it to start. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's kind of that's sort of my take on things, you know. And then Happy Days, you know, that was just a fun, funny show that happened to take place in the fifties, and of course, the Fonz was like an icon of the seventies. Um, but I think I think now uh, there's just a lot of nostalgia for it, and when you when you look at things like Stranger Things. I kind of feel like, even though I really enjoy watching that, um, I, 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 since I was there, I can, I can sort of pinpoint, you know, with little, with laser focus accuracy, which is probably a little not a good thing, you know. Well, that song reference they just put in, well, that song didn't come out for another six months or a year later, you know. Like, yep. you know, there, you know, there, there's 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 dramatic license, and you just let it go and don't be too hard on it, but. <sighs> I, I can pinpoint, well, you know, the person who put this together clearly either didn't grow up in that era or their older sibling was the one who was really, you know, into all this stuff. And they just sort of drafted off of that. And then th- that's how you could sort of isolate whether or not they really knew that that era or just are fond of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's interesting is that uh, you mentioned the 50s and the 80s kind of reminded me a lot of the 50s. Um, but if you had the 50s on one side of the coin and you flipped it to the other side that's where the 80s was it seemed like it was it had a lot of roots in 50s nostalgia or history um but then all of a sudden it took this hard turn where it it was the 50s you could say it was more of a conservative era and the 80s started to become more of maybe of a liberal area and i'm not even talking about about like po- uh, politics per se, mm-hmm. um, but just in lifestyle because you started having you know you started talking about sex more in in horror you start seeing uh, the escalation of violence during the course of uh, and gore during the course of the era, um, whereas you had uh, Letterman's jackets that. Uh, or, that uh, high school kids would be wearing, like that would in the fifties. Uh, you would also see something, you know, like mini skirts uh, of the eighties. So you had sort of this like yin and yang almost between the two different decades. Listen, we were living in a Xanadu world, you know, where you have Gene Kelly who's trying to, you know, relive the great forties era, you know, the big band era, and then, but he's digging all the all the sort of the new new age pop and, and and punk of the 80s and when they're building that club together you know yes my wife that, by the way would appreciate that reference. my <laughs> wife would appreciate that reference <laughs> on both levels as friend gene kelly and I, xanadu because she's a big fan of both <laughs> i rewatched xanadu not too long ago after after literally not seeing it for decades and i i will always champion it because i saw it in the theater and um but but it's important to me because I, I you know when I revisited this I thought well um, I love the ELO music I you know it, it's a fun movie it's meant to be not very you know it, it's it's meant to be kind of dumb 
but I, I, I was actually taken off guard by it, by uh, how much heart it had and how much optimism it had. And I think it hit me in the, in, in the feels in the right time and the right place because I watched it over this past year, which has really been pretty miserable for, for many, for many reasons, as we all know. And I was I was really struck by there wasn't a big age division when it came to appreciating all this art and music. And that's what really struck me. I'm just like, listen, you know, you don't have to be cynical about this stuff if it's not your era. You could appreciate it and you can blend it with contemporary stuff and be, have this nice gumbo of material and still be able to enjoy it. Yeah, that is so true. It, it, I, I, it's been a while since I've seen Xanadu. Uh, this is going to be sure... the Xan, Xanadu podcast. We're going to talk about this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm sure Wait, my wife will be right like, <laughs> "Yeah, my wife's going to be like, hey, let's go watch it." <laughs> she won't. She yeah. won't argue at all about that. Um, so, Paul, well, I, I do. I do want to say something real quick, though. Yeah. Just that you brought up something interesting. You know, about the '50s and the '80s, and you know, I think a lot of, at least for, and I'm speaking solely for myself mm-hmm. in terms of growing up in the '70s and growing up in the 80s. In the 70s, I was, I was fed a steady stream of, you know, Leave it to Beaver and Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch and, uh, um, uh, uh, sorry, Andy Griffith Show. Yep. Um, and the idealism that was, you know, I know the, the you know, Gilligan's Island was the 60s and, you know, uh, Brady Bunch was the late 60s and early 70s. Was it late 60s or did it start early 70s only? I think, Either it, was, way. I think it was late 60s, mid to late, I think. Yeah, at the very beginning. Yeah. Um, but my, my point is that there, there's a real idealism, and you said conservative, but I saw it as this sort of utopian idealism that was being, you know, it's, it's, it's the thing that was deconstructed in Pleasantville. Um, but that was the kind of thing where everything was, was tried to be perfect and, and have a great message and you get to have a boysenberry pie at the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. Whereas the 80s for me, you know, it, it was a very different time, but that sort of is encapsulated as kind of this greed is good time now when you think about it. You know, corporate raiders and, and Reagan, Reagan, you know, Reagan and, and Thatcher and AIDS and all sorts of, you know, complicated, complicated issues. But for me in the 80s, it was about John Hughes and, and, and the opposite sex and music and movies. And, and that's all that I fed on, you know? I, I wasn't interested in the drama. So I saw the 80s as more of just sort of uh, trying to define who I was and using media to sort of cherry pick what I wanted myself to be as sort of this amalgamation of what the media was telling me I should be, especially with the MTV generation. So it's kind of interesting that when I walked away from that, I, I realized how important that stuff was to me then. That's not important to me now because I am who I am and I stick by who I am. But I'm a product of that era and it's all kind of lots of gray lines. You and I are very similar that way because it's interesting. So I always find myself when I'm when I'm reminiscing about that time period, a lot of it is like what was on television, what was I finding, going to home video stores, uh, watching things, being you know, being caught up in a lot of that media stuff, especially like Atari coming out. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I am the definition of a consumer. <laughs> uh, I, I really am. And that is kind of the definition of that age. Yeah. You know? But it's like there was so much more going on. But I think. Sorry to jump on no. your, your interjection there, but it's like, you know, we're, we're sort of products of of product merchandising, but that was really all over the map. And so it's kind of interesting to see how 
our generation, you know, the Gen X generation sort of, which was kind of this latchkey generation, was trying to sort of figure out who we were and, and while our parents were working. And, and the media really drove into our brains what we should be. So what we ended up being is kind of an interesting conversation. Yeah, and it's so funny, right, with, with last year, with 2020 being um, every with people being, you know, having to live at home and, and, and be locked in and, and, and on lockdown, how they talked about our generation being the one that was basically, we were kind of <laughs> bred for that. <laughs> it's like, yep. and I'm like, yeah, I mean, I remember as a we kid, know how to do yeah, it. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm an only child and I remember being in my room, listening to a cassette on, on my boom box, right. Or maybe something, an album on the record player, you know, on my, you know, Commodore 64, no internet back in the days, kids. And just kind of like getting lost in that world. And I was like, yeah, you know, in a, in a strange way, yeah, we were kind of bred for, for this whole lockdown thing. Um, yeah. How ironic. But let's pull it back to the movie. Um, because we, we I, I think you and I could talk all day just about, <laughs> just about growing sure, up in that time sure. period. And I don't want to yeah. miss the point of your film because your film is great. And, and like I said, part two really lived up to uh, everything that part one was. So congratulations on okay. that. I, I, Thank I, you. Um, my, my initial question is um, how far into part one, because you didn't call it part one. It was just in search of darkness, uh, a mm-hmm. journey into iconic ace horror. So how far into part one did you decide that there was going to actually be a part two? Um, it wasn't until part one was completely done and it wasn't until part one started being seen by many eyes and people responded to it, uh, positively for the most part, uh, that were like, wow, people are liking this. People are, are actually enjoying the fact that it's over four hours. People are, are responding to this concept and this structure. Um, we have all this material that didn't make that initial cut not because it wasn't very good, but because there literally is just no way to manage that with, you know, it would be a a 20 hour movie. So uh, we've got material for more and we've got a hunger for more. And we also have all the constructive criticism, I might say, for lack of a better word, about what people wished was in the film versus what was in it. Uh, And I felt very much the same way, you know, a lot of the more, you know, Italian horror, you know, a lot of the deeper cuts, you know, other, other, you know, non-franchise movies, you know, other, other smaller franchise movies. It's a decade of, of hundreds and hundreds of movies that came out from around the world. And we only, you know, presented a, a, a sliver of that in In Search of Darkness, even because, even though we were, you know, at over four hours long. So, yeah. For for Robin Block, who's the executive producer, the the, the greatest two words he could say was, uh, you know, let's do another. That's three words. Let's, you know. <laughs> um, but basically, you know, I, I, I when I finished the part one, I was like, we've got all this additional material. What are we going to do with it? And when he said, when he said, let's do part two, I was just like, I'm in. Let's do it. So when you had mentioned part two to me when we first talked back in October. Um, I had this idea that uh, you were going to take a lot of that unused footage from part one, do a couple of new interviews from two, and then just kind of combine it all. But instead, watching it, I'm like, this looks like this is basically all done from scratch again. Uh, You have uh, some 
footage from part one, or at least looks like it was done from part one. But you have some of those same interview subjects coming back doing new interviews, plus uh, all the uh, additional people you had come in. So was this basically like starting all over again, like you did with part one? Yeah, this was starting from scratch. Um, yeah, and I'm glad you point that out because I think the way I presented it, it sounds like there's no new, you know, while it's all new information and stuff as people haven't seen, uh, it, it, we did 15 brand new faces, but on top of that, we did additional new interviews. I think we did 23 brand new interviews in total. Wow. Um, and so, you know, we went back to the likes of, you know, Cassandra Peterson and uh, Bill Mosley and Kane Hodder, uh, you know, uh, you know, James Rolfe and Cecil Trekenberg, um, uh, Phil Noble Jr. and Heather Wixon, uh, a lot of the people who are just extremely knowledgeable about more of this deep cut stuff. Uh, were crucial to revisit uh, and have them continue talking uh, and provide proper perspective. But this time around, we have brand new faces. So in addition to the majority of the cast who was in In Search of Darkness Part 1 and the material that I thought best fit Part 2, uh, you know, we talked to uh, Robert, you know, Robert England, uh, Nancy Allen, uh, Tom Savini, you know, Linnea Quigley, um, you know, a bunch of cool new, you know, Robert Rustler and Getty Watanabe, you know, talking about vamp. That was, you know, I, I had to have that. Um, you know, Clancy Brown talking about the bride and sharing some of his, you know, perspective. Um, it, it's, it, it was very important for me to go deeper and go farther, but there's still so much that, that is untapped. I mean, there, there's just a wealth of material there. Um, but this was something where I kind of felt like with the first one, I had to toe the line, uh, with, with a bit of an introduction and a survey of the decade. This one, I felt much freer to, to go deeper and, and, and talk about just more things that, uh, wouldn't necessarily fit the bill for the first one in terms of sort of a survey, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that like for the first one. Um, you initially begin discussing the politics and the pop culture of the time. Part two, you changed that up. Uh, part two, you decided to uh, discuss uh, classic horror influences. So what prompted that? Mm -hmm. uh, that's something where uh, that was a very much a theme that I, I wanted to uh, have going through part two that uh, all of these movies that came out in the 80s stand on the shoulders of the cinema that came before it. Uh, and a lot of the people who were part of that movement, who were on screen or behind the camera, were very much influenced by the movies of the past. And we touched on that a little bit. You know, like there's this great moment in, in Search of Darkness Part 1 where Tom Woodruff Jr. is talking about playing, playing Pumpkinhead and talking to Stan Winston and saying, oh, in this moment, we should do that, the King Kong thing, and they had this shorthand, and it was clearly something from the 1933 King Kong moment, a moment from that movie that they both understood because that was something they saw when they were kids. Um, this, is, this was important to understand why the, the sort of the cinema that everyone grew up on and how it, was, it, it, it impacted the filmmaking of the 80s. And, and, you know, whether it was remakes, whether it was The Fly or The Blob or The Thing, you know, remaking The Thing from Another World, or, or homages to a lot of these movies uh, from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, 
even 70s. All this stuff really shaped what the output was like in the 80s. And these filmmakers are film fans. Uh, you know, they're, they're little kids, you know, trying to recapture that lightning in the bottle that they felt when they first saw some film, whether it was Frankenstein or the thing from another world or, you know, uh, something even sillier, you know. Uh, all these things really sort of ignited a spark of creativity for all these people. And I wanted to capture that in that they discuss what, what really influenced them, but also for some of them, how it impacted their work in directly. You know, whether it was Tom Savini yeah. realizing that, you know, watching Man of a Thousand Faces with, uh, about Lon Chaney and, and, and realizing that you could do that for a living. I mean, mm -hmm. that just was a revelation to him. You know, before that, he'd, you know, he'd watch Creature from the Black Lagoon and think it was amazing and think, how'd you do it? And believe that it was a real monster. But then you see in a movie about there, there was a person behind the makeup and that someone could do that for a living. And it, he just said, that's that's the life for me, you know, uh, you know, or, or Don Mancini, you know, watching The Omen and 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 seeing David Warner get uh, you know, lose his head. Yeah. yeah, and saying, "Oh my God, that's horrific! That's made such an impact on me." Now I have to do it in my movie. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and there's a direct link there. Um, so you know, there there's lots of stories there, but I thought it was important, especially having uh, James Ralph sort of encapsulate that, or even uh, Cassandra Peterson and her show. You know, she wanted to share. She did what we are doing with the movie with her her show, Movie Macabre. And uh, basically, whether it's a goofy movie or a good movie, but mostly, you know, schlock, for, the, for lack of a better word, uh, she was introducing a whole generation to sort of a library of films that weren't going to get much love or attention. So she, she could poke fun at it, but still present it to a whole new audience and, and give them an appreciation for, you know, for every Lawrence of Arabia, there's a plan nine from outer space, but... There's the virtues of it, so that, that's what a lot of these people were doing. Now, like part one, uh, part two goes in chronological order. Um, the first film that you discussed in this one is uh, Inferno, Dario Argento's film from 1980. Uh, what's interesting is that you started part two off with a quote from Dario Argento as well. So um, I was wondering if this was done purposely to uh, include the maestro in this one and showing that, uh, hey, Dario Argento was very much a part of the 80s as well as Italian horror, which you would eventually get into in this uh, uh, film as well. Was that, was that the case? Was that done intentionally uh, focusing on Argento at the top? Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, what he says is very important, and it's you know to loosely uh, describe what he says is that you know it, it's horror is like a you know snake shedding its skin. You know, it's constantly changing and constantly evolving, and it's ready to bite you. You know, that's a very broad paraphrase, but that's kind of what it's about. Um, it's constantly changing. I thought that perfectly encapsulates why we can do another four and a half hour movie and it all be have it all be brand new material because there's just such a wealth of material there uh it's still very different it's still evolving it's still changing you can track that evolution over the course of a decade and and more importantly especially where italian cinema is concerned you could see how they were influenced by american cinema they put their own spin on it and then you could see how 
American cinema would respond to that. And then you would see how they would respond to American cinema <laughs> responding to them. And it's like a snake eating its tail. Yeah. Uh, and it's very interesting to see that evolution. But when you look at Italian horror and a lot of the international horror, it was just nuts. I mean, they really just, uh, they cranked it up to 11. So, you know, if you, to reference Spinal Tap. So it's one of those <laughs> things where, you know, it, it, it made that decade that much more interesting as well because definitely not for the squeamish. And uh, if you're a, a true horror fan, that's the kind of stuff that you really gravitate to, which is why it, it's, it was very important to me to cover some of the things that really are not very palatable. I mean, I did a whole chapter on Italian horror, but... You know the the sort of these the sort of faces of death snuff films that started out in the 70s and the late 70s and the early 80s with uh, you know Cannibal Holocaust and Cannibal Ferox and you know these sort of these sort of fabricated snuff films. Why people gravitated to that stuff? Why that stuff is important? And how they presented these things to make it feel real um, to the point where like Diodato, uh, the, the director of Cannibal Holocaust was, <laughs> was arrested. You know, they, he, he was, he had to prove that these people were not killed on film. You know, it's, it's very interesting. Well, another interesting thing that I, I honestly wasn't aware of, uh, before watching your film, uh, was how Italian filmmakers, uh, constantly referenced vision and eyes in their films. <laughs> it's brutal. And it's just it's, like, oh my god, overkill. It's overkill. <laughs> no kidding. My goodness. It's, but again, that was something that I was like, yeah. When you start putting the patterns together, you're like, oh yeah, this was a theme that was used a lot during that time. It was. It was nice having Jaretta Jaretta as part of the cast. You know, she's the she's in Demons, and she's been in a lot of Italian films, um, uh, sci-fi and horror, and she's she's quite a, a, a smart and intelligent and entertaining human being she's very fun you know she's the one with the cat ears <laughs> the yeah, only yeah. one wearing cat ears <laughs> yeah. in the movie uh but she she's there to sort of provide some some cultural reference and and while it might be strange to to us to them it makes sense from a cultural point of view uh that it's hard to articulate but you have to understand that it, it just makes sense so if it's a little more surreal you know again i go back to the sort of cinematic language which is sort of this broad term but it's like when you're speaking in visuals, a lot of stuff you just sort of take at face value and you don't have to necessarily read into it because it creates an atmosphere and a mood. And, and it, it reflects the, the psychological mindset of characters and, and the setting. And you don't really need to do that much more. And that's something that American filmmakers don't do as, as often as European and Italian filmmakers do. Um, but there was, you know, again, sort of this influence on American film as well. I mean, it was, it was kind of fun when I, I thought, well, what are some of the films that are influenced by Italian giallo, for example? And, you know, you go straight to, you know, Brian De Palma and you got a you know, body double and you got a dress to kill. And um, but even, you know, I was like, you know, Jagged Edge fits this as well. You know, you've got the mass killer with uh with gloves, you yeah. know, it's a whodunit. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, that's American Jallo through and through. Yeah. It's just not, it's just not as, as surreal. It's just more of a straightforward thriller, but it, it qualifies. Well, I think that's one of the things American audiences usually look for a straight line. They want, they want that story beginning, middle, end. We're kind of bred with that. And then yeah. when it, when it kind of gets turned on its head, you kind of go, oh. And I, th but I also think that's why <laughs> so many people are so, uh, are big fans of 
uh, Italian films and I know other foreign films for that matter. I mean, um, when you look at that stuff and you go, man, you know, like this is like the story may not make any sense, but the film is so good because there's so many elements that comes to it. And um, that's why I think I always find myself going back to some of these films that may not be considered good films or may not have very good stories, but I just enjoy watching them. And I think that's, well, that's part of cinema, right? You, you're sitting and you're watching, you're taking this in. And sometimes it's not just about the story. The story, of course, is a major part, but watching these beautiful images and seeing performances and stuff, it's kind of like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. Two filmmakers come to mind when it comes to that. Um, uh, the late, great Stuart Gordon and Sam Raimi. And uh, amid all the films that were, and, and maybe I would say Frank Hemmenlotter as well, um, where uh, you basically have everything from, from Evil Dead to Reanimator and from, and from Beyond to, um, you know, Basket Case and Brain Dead. Those movies are, are really great because they don't tell a, a linear tale. It's really, you know, sort of uh, muddled and strange and complicated. Uh, Reanimator is a little more straightforward, you know, in, in comparison to those others. But yeah, they they tell a completely bonkers, unpredictable tale that is an incredible. They, they, they resonate to this day because even if if you haven't seen Reanimator in a while, or if you've never seen Reanimator. You just plunk that down in the middle of the other material that was coming out in the 80s, which was already kind of crazy. Or if you look at it, you know, in comparison to contemporary films today, the, the reanimators is just unpredictable and crazy and, and, and pushes the envelope. You know, that, it's a perfect way of using that, that tired phrase. But it's, it's just it's just it's a crazy, crazy, crazy film that is shocking. And, and I, I can't remember the last time I rewatched the film and was shocked, even when I knew it was going to happen, because of the material and, and, and the sense of humor that, that is, uh, you know, that, that Stuart Gordon puts in this story to make it all work and make it all make sense and yeah. not make it overly ridiculous, uh, but to sort of uh, reinforce the ridiculousness and make it work. Um, you know, you could, could potentially connect it to some of the Italian filmmakers. I wouldn't say it's a direct line at all, yeah. but in terms of nonlinear storytelling or really unpredictable or really just trying to shock, but make it part of the story as well, um, it, it's interesting to see how those fit in the overall timeline. Well, you know, what's interesting is that the one, there's only one movie, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, there's only one movie that I ever watched where I actually got nauseous. I think, I think you know where I'm going to go with this, and yes, one well, of your one of your interview <laughs> subjects mentioned it as well, um, and that was uh, a little movie called City of the Living Dead, <laughs> yes, <laughs> which yes. was um, when I rented it. It was called The Gates of Hell at that point, right. and. Uh, I don't know how I got my hands on this because I don't think I was old enough to rent this, but somehow I don't know if my parents indulged me or whatever. And I remember popping it in, watching it in my room, and then that scene came up in the car. And watching that woman vomiting her intestines out was unlike anything I was ever ready for, ever expected. And it still has traumatized me all these years later. It literally took me 20 years to pop that movie back in. And to nothing watch prepares you for it. That scene just kind of comes out of nowhere. Oh, by the way, this is going to happen now. You yes. Know, I have a vision and now I'm just going to my entire retch up my guts. Yep. 
what can I say? It, uh, I think I think a whole generation of people who got their hands on that, whatever age they were, but especially if it was too early, that's uh, that made an indelible impression. Oh yeah, and that's just that's just, <laughs> that's just funny. That's just funny. Um, there's no other way to look at that because it's so horrible and ridiculous and terrible. Yes, but it's a vision as well. Uh, so it's like okay, <laughs> I, I I grew up, uh, you know. I, when I grew up going to the video store, I, I was, I, I never had that, that friend who saw all the stuff ahead of me and said, you have to see this, you have to see this when it came to a lot of Italian cinema. So I had to discover it myself over time after people would talk about it. But early on in the eighties, I didn't see a lot of that stuff. So, um, and, and I think I, I, when it came to excessive gore, at least on the earlier side, when I was, you know, growing up in the 80s, I kind of veered away from that stuff. I mean, I remember seeing Zombie on the cover of Fangoria, and, and they were talking about how is it, you know, the grossest movie of all time or the most, you know, over-the-top film. That, to me, was not uh, an invitation to go seek it out. Yeah. It kind of was where I was like, I got to check out this box and see it for myself, but I never had the, the, the guts, so to speak, to rent it at least at the time. Now I love it. It's, it's great. But um, at the time, they, they built this up to be such a, a horrifying film that I was just like, nah, it's not for me. It's too, too much. I stayed away from Chopping Mall because I didn't like the title. I was just like, they're showing a, a hand, showing a oh, yeah. you know, shopping, shopping bag with, 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 a... with you know, dead body parts. Yeah. That. Like that, that, why is that appealing to me? You know, I had no <laughs> idea until years later that it was... Uh, you know, as Barbara Crampton puts it, you know, it's just like, you know, ro killer robots who laser you to death, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you imagine so that title? I, I, yeah. <laughs> well, it was, it was called Killbots at first. Yes, that's um, right. Yes. But, but I digress. But it, it's, it, a lot of it is about how these things are marketed and presented. And for me, a lot of this stuff, um, I saw a lot, but a lot of it I discovered later because I just didn't have that one friend or that one, you know, accident where I picked it up and just popped it in just to see what it was about. And, you know, when it came to Italian film, I, I didn't have that early on. And I'm probably, you know, <laughs> a little more psychologically together because of it. <laughs> you were spared. Hey, speaking of exactly. um, crazy movies, um, I want to jump from Italy to Japan. And okay. <laughs> I want to talk yes. about Tetsuo, <laughs> the Iron Man. Um, so you were able to get the film's director, uh, Shinya uh, Sukamoto, in your documentary. Uh, was it easy to find him? Was it tough to get him? H how did that work out? Uh, he was not difficult to get. Uh, he was just very receptive. I think uh, uh, I would like to think that he was honored that he would be part of this. Um, and uh, I was honored to be able to speak with him. And, uh, you know, he doesn't speak much English, and I don't speak much Japanese. So uh, we did the interview over the ones and zeros uh, with an interpreter and a local, um, uh, uh, you know, crew, uh, and we got this interview. You know, I, I, have to, I have to remind people that when I made this movie, the majority of the interviews I did... I said we have 15 brand new faces. I was hoping to get many more, but we were shooting, uh, you know, we had a three month lockdown where we couldn't do anything. And that really changed the dynamic of what we were able to get. Uh, and so a lot of the stuff also in terms of my travel, being able to go anywhere uh, was limited. But fortunately, uh, 
opportunities provided to talk to some of these people, but I just couldn't do it myself. I had to do it over the over the computer. So I, I basically worked with the time zone differential and uh, and interpreters and a local crew and did the interview from my desk, basically. Well, it was great. It was really interesting to to hear what he was talking about, how when he was a child, how he hated the dark and how he would have these crazy nightmares. And then as he started to put stories together, it was, I think he was saying as he was starting to put stories together, then those nightmares went away. It was really interesting. Yeah, he basically, he sort of conquered his own demons uh, and, and bad dreams. And, and, and he, he didn't sleep well at night as a kid. He had a lot of bad dreams, you know, and I'm sure... There's, you know, there's a whole psychology there that we didn't really go into, but um, he he sort of conquered that by by taking all these nightmares and and sort of trying to speak to it on on film. And once he was able to to understand that he was the audience to his own nightmares rather than the victim of his own nightmares, he was able to sort of uh, uh, manage it better. And then he was compelled to put it all on film in the sort of this outrageous film that's just a like a, a you know it's a dream sequence through and through talk about surreal yeah right? I, yeah i mean it really is it's not a favorite film of mine but i i certainly um appreciate what he and the crew did to make that movie because it's it's it is a piece of art it really is because it's an it's an experimental film through yeah. and through and it's a it's i'm glad it's not like a two-hour film because it's it, it's 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 energy draining um, to sit through it. And I don't say that in a negative way. It just, it requires your utmost attention and, and, and and brain processing to watch that film and figure out what, what it means and and why. And that's why it was very important for me to to discuss what this meant to him Um, because you can interpret it in 28,000 different ways, but it all comes down to the filmmaker and his vision and, some filmmakers like to say art is it should speak for itself and and you figure out what it means but he was able to sort of interpret you know uh the connection between you know modern life and and technology and the fusing together of 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 struggles and um it, it made more sense when he explained it yeah speak about i mean talk about a film ahead of its time i mean especially on that topic yeah. i mean i know we're still in the early stages of what is now modern technology but I mean, yeah, I mean, it, you could, that movie could have been made right now and it would just be as relevant as it was back in 89. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you did features on uh, Nancy Allen, uh, Linnea Quigley, Tom Savini, Robert Englund. Um, mm-hmm. what, what prompted that idea for this film? Because you didn't do that in part one. One of, the, one of the obstacles for doing part two was being able, and this is, a, again, a good problem to have, was getting people that you wanted in part one, but you couldn't get them for whatever reason. Um, and then they were available for part two. But then you find yourself, well, you know, we already did Creepshow. We already did Dress to Kill. We already did a bunch of Nightmare on Elm Streets. You know, do I redo these, but I now have the point of view of these actors? Or do I approach it in a different way? And I, and I thought sort of a career retrospective focusing on their 80s work, but what led up to that and what went after that and how it fits in, plus their point of view, allows me to sort of uh, cheat a little bit. And I get to revisit these movies from a different point of view, but we don't focus on the movie solely, if that makes any sense. 
and uh, it allows to them to share their point of view and their perspective and, and their, uh, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty recontextualization of, of their work in the 80s and how it fits in the overall uh, canvas. Uh, to me, I, those are some of my favorite parts of this, you know, of this film is being able to spend focused time with these these incredibly iconic individuals, these, this quartet of individuals and their impact on the decade. What I liked about it is that it, it brought a, you added a flavor to part two. You had everything that was familiar from part one and then you just added another ingredient to it. And um, I thought it was really, really well done. And I like the fact, too, that Nancy Allen is, may not be somebody, somebody who people immediately think of from that time period. And obviously with Linnea, everyone knows her. But I, I, don't, I don't know if it's kind of tough, right? Because I think horror fans know who she is, but I think casual horror viewers don't know who she is. Yes. Yeah. And she, she has such iconic, you know, between the death, the kill in Silent Night, Deadly Night, and then obviously Return of the Living Dead. I mean, they're two iconic horror <laughs> sequences. And, and, and that's another one, you know, so, you know, with uh, Night of the Living Dead, you know, sorry, Return of the Living Dead. Uh, I had already done that, but yeah. I wanted her, her point of view. But when I said, you know, I get to cheat, um, what I also mean by that is that, like, if you have Nancy Allen, it's a crime not to talk about Carrie. But Carrie is 1976, yeah. you know? So how do you include that and have her talk, you know, thoroughly about that um, and have it fit in this film, uh, which is focused on the 80s? And that was sort of the way I, I sort of did with the uh, the origins, the demon seeds, you know, of uh, these films of the past. It, it, it helped sort of reinforce that theme that a lot of these movies sort of led into the, the type of stuff that came out in the 80s, but, you know... It, if it didn't fit actually chronologically in a decade, it could still be covered uh, organically. Yeah. Now it, it's, it was really, it was really a lot of fun to see that. Uh, Robert Anglin uh, mentioned something that was very interesting. I, I'm going to talk about his directing side as opposed to his acting side. Nine Seven Six Evil film he directed. Uh, I'm sure most people probably know that out there. For those of you that don't, he that was his well, one movie. Well, I, that I he think directed. a lot of. Sorry to jump oh, on okay. your intro there, but I think a lot of people don't know. A lot of people don't know that. You might, um, you might be right. I mean, it's it's a film that kind of got lost, right? I mean, it, yeah. it's sort of a like you hear it and you go, huh? And especially for those of us again living through that time period when you had the eight hundred numbers, the nine hundred numbers that were coming out. I just saw one actually a couple of days ago. I think it was New Year's Eve on one of the channels. They had a a commercial for an eight hundred number, and I'm like what like they still have those like people right. still call in like guys still call in hey guys you want to call up you're alone it's like what uh, bizarre but um with nine seven six evil yeah i think it it does kind of get lost in there um but robert england directed it It was the only movie he directed i believe um yes and yeah, i think he did he did a little bit of television but but he he let's see he, he talks about the reason why he doesn't direct and and the types of movies that he would like to direct in in this film, um, which was very interesting to me because he felt more pigeonholed because of his association with with Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy, um, that uh, the the types of movies that they want him to make or wanted him to make or would offer him to make, he didn't. Uh, it was more complicated to him because they were so effects driven, and he he wanted, was much more interested in character driven fair 
Um, one thing that didn't quite make it, here's the thing, you know, it's like, again, again, another four and a half hour movie and, and I know what didn't make in it, make it into the final cut. I mean, I, I sat down with Robert Englund for three hours at his house, which was just a real treat. Wow. That's nice. And, and, and he, you know, he, he mentions, he talks a little bit about Phantom of the Opera, but he went into great detail about the uh, Phantom of Manhattan and what it's about and, and what he would be doing in it. And I, I, I really wish I could have included more of that, but I, I, I had to cut it out because we just didn't have the time for it. But he also talked about this entire film that he was ready to make in Italy. This sort of um, much, it was, it was sort of a, uh, a bit of a fantastic film that had to do with, with uh, heaven and hell and, and all sorts of interesting characters that he was ready to make in Italy and he was so excited to do it. And he lost funding at the last minute and was never able to reclaim it. And uh, it's sort of like the one that got away that he really would have loved doing. Well, that's unfortunate. Uh, he, had, he had cast it and all sorts of stuff. And he's a very eloquent speaker and he tells a very long and this is a good thing, a long, drawn-out tale mm-hmm. uh, that's very descriptive. And um, so it's very hard to to trim that without really cutting out some of the fillets of the sure. meat, so to speak. Yeah. I, with um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you can't, right? Because you do it a disservice. Yeah. Um, with 976 Evil, he had mentioned that uh, another producer had come in and they disagreed and the producer wound up basically cutting having the film cut how he wanted yes. it um did robert mention anything about possibly trying to do a director's cut of 976 evil or did that even come up or does the footage even he didn't, exist he, he, he did he didn't seem interested in that um he didn't seem interested in that um uh, a lot yeah um i mean he talked very de- descriptively about and that this is another thing that didn't quite make it into it for the reasons why i explained but um a lot of it had to do with with sort of stylistic flourishes that tell a much like the way he tells a tale uh where he strings things together in a very visual descriptive way um he would have you know the tale of one scene uh, going into the beginning of another with with crossfades and and match cuts and all sorts of really interesting, very you know creative cinematic storytelling, and um, you know he talks about how the other producer who came in who didn't necessarily see his vision the same way wanted to make a 90 minute movie. Well, they cut all that stuff out. So every every scene in the movie it just starts at the meat of the scene and then gets out. Uh, where he really wanted to uh, uh, create a much more atmosphere, uh, and it just didn't make it in there. But wow. I, I, I can't definitively say if he ever would want to do it. I don't even know if it's that stuff's available anymore yeah. to him, and he did not express interest in revisiting it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Understood. Sorry, sorry to rain on, on the no, 976 that, Evil Director's Cut yeah, Parade. That's all right. I don't think it's going to happen. I, I, it just it popped into my head when I saw it. And I'm like, I got to ask. <laughs> but I, 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 I'm very interested because 976 Evil, uh, I can see all the things that are missing that he describes. Uh, in that you watch a film and you can see that it was definitely, I think there's lots of great ideas and I think great performances and visuals, but it's also very truncated and you can see that it was really kind of butchered in the editing suite 
and um, I, I would very much be interested myself in seeing the film that never quite made it to the screens. Now, one of the things I didn't get a chance to discuss with you in, in our last interview, uh, I want to try, try to squeeze in here, uh, soundtracks, because soundtracks definitely were a major part of 80s movies just in general, whether it was, oh, yeah. it was like Flashdance, Ghostbusters, you know, Beverly Hills Cop. Um, horror, Xanadu. Yeah, Xanadu. Xanadu <laughs> ah, see, it all comes full circle. Um, uh, horror and sci-fi soundtracks, obviously huge. Um, a lot of fans, me being one of them. Um, it's really interesting the effect the soundtracks had from that time period from um, uh, Friday the 13th, which everybody, everybody's <laughs> calling back to your first film. Uh, it sounds like everybody thinks that it is <laughs> as opposed to Kiki Mama. So it's, it's so funny because I always thought, is it just me? <laughs> well, that's why I enjoy having Kane Hodder just going and he's you know he's he's Jason in four movies so exactly. you should probably know but he's just like I always thought it was that yeah it's it's so funny um with, with I think that. it morphed a little bit I think I think the the uh, when you really listen to it, it you can't it's sort of it's, it's whatever your ear hears yeah you know it's like those uh, what do, I don't know there's there's a certain name for it but there are certain images where uh, every half of the world sees one color and half of the world sees another color, like that dress, that yes. dress meme. Oh whatever. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I, I, I think I think uh, the the kiki ki ma 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 cha 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 will forever live on that on the edge of that knife blade. Yeah. I, uh, by the way, I was really happy to see that you included the uh, trick or treat in the first film. This at least the soundtrack of it. I remember oh, going yeah. to see that movie when it came out. Yeah, way. <laughs> I, yeah, I had to go see it because Ozzy and Gene Simmons were in it, even though they were in it for like a blip. Um, yep. But it, 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 is, it is interesting. I, I don't even think I've seen the movie since I saw it in the theaters. I, I, I couldn't even tell you anything about it other than Gene being the radio announcer and Ozzy with that great right. with that great turn as, as the preacher. Televangelist. Oh, yeah. my God. That was so I, – I saw a clip of that the other day. It's so funny. It's so good. Um, but it is interesting too how heavy metal really, uh, not even in American movies, but in, when you watch like Demons or um, any, uh, like Argento um, uh, phenomena, um, where you have Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, it, it's really mm-hmm. interesting how much heavy metal was included in a lot of these horror movies. Yeah, there was a real association with the, sort of the rock and roll. Well, it's like uh, uh, Ryan Turek talking about, you know, it sort of had this rock and roll attitude you know this punk rock yep. kind of feel to it uh, and that music was those the perfect companion to that that attitude when it came to those films um, but you know but you also have very bombastic scores whether it's you know Hellraiser or you know um, you know the fly uh, or to me I, I really gravitated to like Giorgio Moroder and cat people one of my all-time favorite soundtracks and you know the sort of the synth they call it synthwave now. Back then, it was just um, you know synthesizer. Yeah, yeah. You know, just but but yeah, but you know, just uh, uh, John Carpenter really set the tone for for the entire decade with his soundtrack for Halloween and then everything else he did. Yeah. Um, so it, it it it's kind of like uh, you know when you you go to sci-fi for a minute. You know, at a certain point when. It was the 60s and the 70s. They thought if they're going to do sci-fi, it's got to be uh, blips and beeps. And, you know, it, it moved on from yeah. the theremin, theremin. To, to the synthesizer. Yep. And although he wasn't the first, all of a sudden you have, you know, John Williams and, and George Lucas collaborating with the ultimate symphonic score. And that sort of was a seismic shift in what everyone thought made a movie bigger in terms of sci-fi. Yep. It told a big, larger tale. 
but there still was people who <laughs> couldn't afford that that uh they, they couldn't fit the band in the room so they had to stick, stick with their synthesizer they just didn't have the budget so no one genre sticks to one style or genre of music yeah. and that to me is very interesting to explore the the depths of that true um speaking of soundtracks uh weary pines uh provided um the score uh, for oh, yeah. both your films. Um, how did you end up meeting them? And um, did they provide all of the score or did they do... I, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure how much. So could you explain how much they contributed? They contribute the, the entire score, but there are certain songs and, and, and elements that are uh, from New Retro Wave, which is the uh, uh, release label, the Synthwave release label. So we, we partner with both. But in terms of the music through and through, the soundtrack of not including the, the credits, that's all Weary Pines. And uh, Robin Block found Weary Pines. I'm not sure if they found him or he found them. Um, but yeah, executive producer Robin Block found them. And, uh, you know, that was one of the challenges when going into the first film and the second. Second was an easier decision. You know, hands down, we want Weary Pines back. But the first film was like, how are we going to, this is going to, this film is getting going to be longer and longer and longer than we thought, and we need to provide the the the, the soundtrack that really captures that decade. Uh, and I listened to a variety of composers and bands, and you know they'd have a moment here or a moment there, or they'd just be completely wrong. But then when I when I, I it's very true. I heard Weary Pines when I was taking a walk. And I was walking around and uh, in my neighborhood, and I, I live in a nice hilly, mountainy nature area. And that music uh, was the soundtrack to my walk, and I knew immediately that these guys were were the perfect fit. And uh, it's a duo; uh, they they're they're so great to work with. And uh, it was just uh, it was a blessing to be able to get Weary Pines to score not part not only part one but part two. They're great. Uh, I love their I love their music, and uh, we actually I think I mentioned to you we we connected. So I'm I'm planning on having them on the show uh, in a few months, hopefully if all works out. Excellent. Yeah, I really look forward to, to talking with them. Uh, they're, Jamie and I. They're, they're, go ahead. Oh no, uh, Jamie and I were uh, emailing each other. He seems very nice, so I, I really look forward to talking to both. Down to earth, wonderful to work with. Uh, you know, it's really and and when you talk with them. You could you could sort of dive into you know the working relationship, which is an interesting one because it's a bit of a chicken and the egg. They they provided a lot of material, but then we discussed about uh, we discussed when I say they they provided a lot of material, they had a lot of material, but they also created a lot of material for the film because it's a, it's a four hour film, and we went through a lot of decisions and choices of stuff that ultimately did get used or didn't get used. Uh, and, and that was a complicated process because it really wasn't until the film was put together that we really sort of put the, you know, uh, started applying all this music and seeing how it would fit best. And some of the bright ideas that, that I had in terms of sort of these chapter introductions that were sort of more thematic to certain films, like whether it was The Shining or whether it was Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, to sort of uh, connect with those a little more seemed a little too obvious and too on the nose when I requested them. So we had to sort of go with different music in terms of that, mm -hmm. which didn't mean that the stuff they created wasn't amazing. It just was too obvious. <laughs> so sure, yeah, uh, it was, it was kind of an interesting, interesting progression in the type of stuff they created. But they would they would provide 
uh, a certain vibe or feel or track, uh, but they would also provide faster versions and slower versions. So for every track that they would provide, they, they'd have three versions of it, uh, which was very helpful in terms of pacing to be able to apply whether it needed to be faster or slower or just the regular speed that they made the the yeah, the tracks. It was an interesting process. They, they, they're uh, like I said, their their music's great. They sent me a bunch of their stuff, and I, I I sat here for days just listening to it over and over again. I'm a big fan of that genre as it is, and and they're just it's great stuff. And for those listening, you know, you should seek out Weary Pines on you know go to their site, but you can go to Spotify as well because they have. I, I think it's either on their site and or Spotify. They put the entire playlist of, of music for In Search of Darkness Part 1 on there, so you could listen to the entire thing. It's really great. Now, before I forget, speaking of great contributions to your film, uh, I, I was kicking myself for not asking this uh, last time for Part <laughs> 1, but I'm glad you brought it back for Part 2. Um, the graphic of the wall of posters that you used for the transitions... Ah. You brought him back for part two. Whose idea was it and who created it? Because it, it is masterful. Well, I would say that uh, when when I first was putting the structure together, uh, actually it was while I was listening to Weary Pines music, I would think to myself, how are we, you know, there's so many more films that we're going to be able to get to. Uh, and there are so many great posters out there. Um, how cool would it be if you have this wall of posters for each year and you just go, you show them all and you sort of move around them and then you focus in on one and that's the movie that you're going to talk about. And I, and I expressed that desire of, of visualizing that in some way, shape or form to uh, uh, Sam Way, who's my editor, and Paul Conshake, who is our graphic designer. Uh, and, and Sam ended up putting something together that was temp that we just thought was amazing. And we ended up, uh, fine tuning that. And that's what we ultimately used. Um, and, and it, it works so well. And then, so for part two, when we did our intro, uh, Paul is the guy who does the, uh, you know, the graphics, uh, in the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, he also does those chapter graphics as well. I don't okay. know if you, I don't know if you caught, I'm going to do a quick tangent, but, uh, in two of the years between 80 and, and 89 for part two, uh, there's there's some tracking issues. I saw that. Yes. <laughs> and yes. we put that in just for I fun. love that. I absolutely love that. <laughs> and, and, I, and I wanted people to watch that and say, oh, no, no, there's, there's a tracking issue. And then realize, well, that's not possible. Yeah. It's just a digital film. That's my problem with digital is that it's too clean. I love yeah. it's like having a pop in, a, in an album. You, you, if you know a song that has a pop in it, it lives in that forever. I mean, <laughs> and I love the tracking because it's so perfect. And yes, the gra- and I, and I have to say, I loved going through the video store in part two, that graphic of going through the video store out to the title. And then I love the jump scare that you guys threw in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just, I laughed and I just, it just made me so happy because it just, I felt like a kid watching it. It was so well, much fun. Great. Dave, Dave Morell is this amazing artist, and he did uh, one of the posters for uh, of that sort of skeleton cheerleader, zombie skeleton cheerleader. Um, and Paul, uh, what he did was he he took that material and he sort of led into it. And uh, he he I, I such a bravura. I, I'm so proud of that that opening graphic that he did, where uh, you know you're flying through the boxes and 
you know, the idea was it was originally supposed to be posters, but it was supposed to be reminiscent of browsing through a video store. That was always sort of the intent to just show the the, the art and the material that was there. Um, but it, it unintentionally landed much more solidly that everyone was reminded of their video store experience. So I thought that that is a much better way of approaching part two, just hit it you know head on yeah that you're just literally inside <laughs> a video store you know you're in like the equivalent of a slashback video yep. store uh and then you get to go inside the box and paul created these this wonderful uh openings of you know when the box opens and there's this bright light and you're next thing next thing you know you're in the magic of the movie at least conceptually and uh it it works so well. Thought process behind it. it. It works so well. It was it was such a pleasure to see that. It was just it's the little, it's the and I know it's not a little thing to create, but it's the little things, um, that really add to it and make it so enjoyable because you you can't wait to see the next one and you can't wait to see the next one and you can't wait to see the next and it's just it's all those things in there that's that's so that make it so enjoyable to watch. Well, there's there's another element, and, and, and we sort of address this in part two as well, but it's in part one, uh, is that um, you've got, before we start uh, a focus on any film, you've got uh, a piece of the trailer. And um, that, to me, is, is one of the most nostalgic, nostalgic elements of sort of, of centering you to approach a new, you know, a, a sort of dissection of a new film. And... Um, uh, Cecil Trachenberg, um, Trachenberg, I'm, I'm mispronounced, I'm sorry, Cecil, Trachenberg, um, who is, uh, a good bad flicks. He, you know, he's talking about like the boogans. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, it's just like sometimes when you just see the trailer and it's the boogans and you're like, I don't know what the boogans are, but now I have to see it because they're telling me to see the boogans. <laughs> and, and then you realize that the boogans monster is just, ridiculous um but i think that's part of the fun of the whole experience of reliving this decade is uh is is, is zeroing in on on the trailers and and the yeah. hype that it created whether or not the film delivered was a different story i love tv spots and radio spots i miss those days they, yeah. they really don't have have them very much anymore now, especially before... when they didn't tease they didn't spoil the entire film yes yes now before we wrap up there is one of your guests uh Chris Jericho, famed wrestler. Uh, mm-hmm. I have to disagree with him on something. He said Halloween Five is a good movie, <laughs> and I do yeah. not disagree. I do not agree with that at all. <laughs> Halloween Five is not a good movie, <laughs> and I, and well, I feel safe. He- I feel safe saying that from here because I'm not going to get suplexed through a table or anything. So, um, yeah, but if I see him yeah, in person, I'll agree with him. <laughs> yes, you're out of reach, so you're safe. Exactly. He's he, he's a he's such a great guy, and he's so knowledgeable, and he's just the fan of all fans, and. Um, I just really enjoy, I mean, <laughs> he's got a great sense of humor and I really love the energy that he, he, he injects in, in part two, but, um, yeah. yeah, you don't necessarily, that's part of, uh, the, the charm of in search of darkness part one or part two is people are sharing their opinions. You know, they're not declaring it as this is the, this is the greatest or the worst or something in between. They're, they're sharing their opinions, why they like things, yeah. uh, or why they don't like things. You know, and I try and keep it progressively uh, overall positive. Uh, but you know, uh, these films these films have to live or die by their own merits, and the fans either, you know, they circle the wagons around them. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say too, um, I was glad to see that no chuds or humanoids from the deep were harmed in making. Yeah, you caught that. Part two. <laughs> Very good. 
<laughs> yes. yes, we we saved the the Cenobites last time. This time, no chuds are humanoids from the deep. I love you know, that. Part, part, I, I got to tell you, you know, maybe the greatest thing I get to do uh, in the, in this movie is I get to write something like that at the end, at the last line of the end credits. Because I always I always really appreciated when I would look in the end credits of any other film when someone had a sense of humor. Um, and it made it into the credits, and it made me realize that it's not this sort of this necessarily strict thing that has to, you know, everyone who participated in all, all credit where credit is due, it's important and necessary to put in your credits. Doesn't mean you can't have fun. I mean, I remember watching a Winnie the Pooh movie with my kid and watching the credits, and there someone got a, a credit for, his credit was caffeination. And, and I okay. just thought to myself, I, and I thought caffeination, that, that perfectly encapsulates, you know, a bunch of animators working on a deadline fueled by coffee and give, you know, the guy who provided the coffee, the, the caffeination, you know, that person deserves their credit, you know, between that and between that and like production babies, you know, I just love, uh, yeah. you know, no blanks were harmed in the making of this film. Well, it's a documentary. Hopefully no one was harmed, but no, <laughs> exactly. no monsters either. Let's exactly. Well, listen, David, thank you so much for coming back into the graveyard to talk about In Search of Darkness Part 2. Um, this was a blast. Uh, we could... I think you and I could talk for days on 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 all of this. Um, unfortunately, we're so limited here in time. Um, well, thank my you, pleasure. Thank you again, and uh, again for anybody out there. Eighties uh, Horror dot com is where you can go. Sign up for the newsletter, and you'll get information as uh, information comes out on the film and when it'll be released. And hopefully, that'll be soon. So uh, those of you that have not yet seen it. Uh, can see it. In the meantime, check out uh, In Search of Darkness on Shudder. Uh, David Weiner, uh, director of both films. David, thanks so much uh, for joining me. I look forward to having you here for part three. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Me too. I really appreciate uh, being able to talk about this stuff and uh, getting a platform, even if I'm standing six feet under, feet under, feet under. And as I put this interview to rest, I want to again thank David for uh, coming back on the program. It's always great talking to him. Uh, It's just, it's such an easy conversation to have um i probably could have talked to him for at least another hour regarding in search of darkness part two um it's just i i can't wait to have him uh back on the show again for um his 80s science fiction documentary that'll be coming out uh again in search of darkness uh is available on shutter part two you can find out more about it uh go to 80s horror sign up for their newsletter and you'll get that information in your inbox as it comes out. Now, before the interview, I teased a little bit by mentioning that David and I did uh, a separate conversation uh, regarding 80s horror. However, it's not going to be on the Graveyard Show podcast. Uh, This interview, or I should say really conversation that David and I have, um, this is going to be part of a new show that I'm going to be doing exclusively for the Graveyard Show podcast's YouTube channel. And the name of this new show is going to be called The Catacombs of Horror. Unlike the Graveyard Show podcast, The Catacombs of Horror is not an interview-driven show. I will have conversations with guests from time to time, but mainly it's just going to be me talking about different horror topics, uh, things that won't appear or wouldn't appear on the Graveyard Show podcast. And since it's YouTube, uh, there will be a lot of video production included uh, to keep your interest as well. So... All you need to do is just go to YouTube, search for Graveyard Show Podcast. You can subscribe, and you will get the updates on when the Catacombs of Horror will be available. 
I'm looking uh, very soon. I don't want to put a timetable on it yet because it is my first one. I'm doing it a little differently than uh, the podcast. So I don't want to put a time limit on it, but it's going to be soon. And I'll also announce it on my podcast when it's available as well. But again, you can go to YouTube, search for Graveyard Show Podcast. You can subscribe to the channel. And when Catacombs of Horror is available, you will know. Again, if you'd like to reach out to me, uh, the email address is gyspodcast at gmail.com, gyspodcast at gmail.com. The Graveyard Show Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Amazon, uh, Prime Music, and everywhere podcasts exist. And of course, as I just mentioned, uh, the Graveyard Show Podcast is also available on YouTube. If you know anyone who's a fan of horror, please invite them to enter the graveyard. New listeners and friends are always welcome. In the meantime, my friends, it's great opening the doors for the first time in 2021. Uh, I hope, again, all of you had a great holiday season. Let's let's all look forward to a uh, much better and happier 2021. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and I will see you again here very, very soon. And in the meantime, as you exit the graveyard, I would like to remind you to please... Lock the gate behind you. We wouldn't want anyone to get out. Until next time.